I didn't yet post the um, paper topics, but they should be up by this afternoon. If you have questions about them, just email uh, whoever your section leader is. Um, that is to say, uh, either Courtney or me. Um, and um, we have this vacation coming up. I thought maybe we could meet next week. You guys don't mind, right? <laughs> oh, well. Um, all right, let's, we um, are going to try to do a little bit more catch up today. So let's go to the invocation of book seven, um, which we almost but didn't quite get to yesterday. Um, and uh, here we get to, we, we return to Earth. Um, that's part of um, the interesting um, convergence in Paradise Lost um, of both space and time. That is to say, what um, happens temporally in the ordering of the incidents in Paradise Lost um, happens in um, a different order from the telling of those incidents. And um, it also, Paradise Lost also skips around um, from hell to heaven to our solar system to earth back to heaven, um, back in time um, to the war in heaven to the north. Um, it's all over the place in the universe as well as all over the place in time. Um, but as we get more and more towards the central single event in Paradise Lost, if it is a single event, um, which is the fall of Adam and Eve, um, the moment that Eve eats the fruit, the moment that Adam eats the fruit, um, one question to ask yourself is, is that one thing or is that two things? Um, helpful hint, it's one thing. Um, helpful hint, but God treats it as though it's two things. Um, and that might be um, another um, indictment in the Bill of Indictments against God, that he treats the fall of Eve and the fall of Adam um, as separate things, as though Eve could fall and Adam not fall. Um, that's something that we'll get to, I hope, by the end of class today. Um, but we converge on that single moment, um, that single moment which is most compressed in the four words, she plucked, she ate. Um, that is, all of these thousands of lines of poetry are focusing on, honing in on those four words in book nine. She plucked, she ate. Um, that's where everything is heading in Paradise Lost. But after that, it then goes on to our world, to the world that we live in, as you will see in books 11 and 12. Books 11 and 12, the sequel, what happens after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, is they, um, God and the angels and Satan and sin and death, um, respond to this. We have a little bit more time in heaven, a little bit more time in hell. Then we go back to earth again, and we look at how Adam and Eve behave after they have full consciousness of what they've done. And then we have, as you will see in books 11 and 12, um, a prediction of the future, what is future to Adam and Eve, but past to us, followed by the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. 
Um, so there again, what is happening is we are narrowing and circling in and spiraling into our world, to our first parents, to what our first parents did, and then to what happens afterwards, which is much more straightforward in the telling than what happened before. Is your hand up? No. Okay. So um, book seven tells us that we're back on in our world, and um, the invocation of book seven is particularly beautiful. Descend, so this is book seven, line one. Descend from heaven, Urania. So he calls upon the muse Urania. Descend from heaven, Urania. Urania is traditionally the muse of the skies, the muse of astronomy. Descend from heaven, Urania. By that name, if rightly thou art called. So whether that's the right name or not, he doesn't know. But if that's the way to call her, that's how he will call her. Descend from heaven, Urania, by that name, if rightly thou art called, whose voice divine following above the Olympian hill I soar, above the flight of Pegasian wing. So I followed your voice. There's that voice again. Higher than Mount Olympus, higher than the abode of the gods in Greek mythology. But it doesn't matter if that's the right name, the meaning, not the name I call. For thou, nor of the Muses nine, nor on the top of old Olympus dwellst, but heavenly born, before the hills appeared or fountain flowed, thou with eternal wisdom didst converse, wisdom thy sister, and with her didst play in presence of the Almighty Father, pleased with thy celestial song. So he's calling upon the muse that has always been present and was the sister of wisdom. So somehow poetry is the sister of wisdom. And um, Urania sang to God, who was pleased with her celestial song. And now he wants her to sing to him. And then this part, up led by thee into the heaven of heavens, I have presumed an earthly guest. So here, the context of this is that a heavenly guest is on earth. Raphael is on earth. But now we get a different and um, quite more powerful perspective, which is Milton having presumed to go into the heaven of heavens, even though he is himself earthborn, and not to heavenly spirits little inferior, which is what Satan has said about Adam and Eve, because he is a fallen person. He is an earthly guest. So up led by thee into the heaven of heavens, I presumed, an earthly guest and drawn imperial air, thy tempering. That is to say, this air was too rare, too fine, too um, ethereal, too heavenly to support human breath, human breathing, except that you made it possible for me to breathe it for a while. With like safety guided down, return me to my native element. So any of you who know Robert Frost's poem, Birches, um, Birches um, has a moment where Frost says, Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. 
Milton also wants to return to Earth. He's been in heaven, but Earth is where he wants to be. Return me to my native element. Lest from this flying steed unreined, that is, the um, horse that he is riding to the heaven of heavens, lest from this flying steed unreined as once Bellerophon, though from a lower climb, Dismounted on the Atlean field, I fall erroneous, there to wander and forlorn. So there's that word forlorn again that we saw when Satan was looking at how Adam and Eve were forlorn in the Garden of Eden. So there to wander and forlorn. Um, Anyone know the Keats poem where forlorn is an important word? Keats ends his Ode on a Nightingale, which is heavily influenced by Milton. Uh, Milton also talks about the nightingale tuning her nocturnal note. Keats ends his Ode on a Nightingale um, by thinking of fairylands forlorn, and then that interrupts his um, um, meditation. That interrupts his um, uh, state of fantasy, his imaginative flight. And he says, forlorn. He repeats the word, forlorn. The very word is like a bell that tolls me back to my soul self. So that word forlorn is a word that Keats certainly noticed in Milton and probably noticed that Milton was using intentionally and advisedly. So Milton here is saying, I can't keep talking about heaven because I may fall from the heaven of heavens, the highest heights that my poem has brought me to. I want to get back to earth, to the safety of earth, which is my home. And there's something very powerful about Milton saying that earth is his home and not heaven. And that if he doesn't get back, he will be forlorn, erroneously wandering. The word erroneous there means wandering. Error is to wander from the truth. That's the etymology of the word error, is that you wander away from the straight and narrow. You wander away from the truth. Errare is the Latin word for to wander. So when we err, it's we're going off from where we should be going. He goes on, half yet remains unsung, but narrower bound within the visible diurnal sphere, that is the sphere of day and night, of daily life, Um, within the visible diurnal sphere, standing on earth, not wrapped above the pole, more safe I sing with mortal voice. So there's Urania's voice, and then there's this other thing, mortal voice voice. Not the voice that he wishes for in book four, that he who saw the apocalypse heard in heaven aloud, woe unto the inhabitants of earth, but mortal voice, the voice of a mortal person. Remember mortal taste at the beginning of Paradise Lost, here becomes mortal voice. More safe I sing with mortal voice, unchanged to hoarse or mute, though fallen on evil days. So he himself has fallen. Fallen on evil days here, and he goes on, 
on evil days though fallen and evil tongues. This is actually autobiographical. That is to say that Milton worked on Paradise Lost after the fall of the Commonwealth and the restoration of Charles II. We talked about this before, but here again you should know and note that Milton belonged to a rebel government that went against the King of England who himself claimed to be ruling by divine right. And Milton was a high-ranking official, the equivalent of a foreign minister, in a government that rebelled against the King of England, executed him, and ran England for, depending on how you count, about 12 years. And then Milton's rebellion, or the rebellion that Milton was such a strong part of, was defeated, and the rebels were um, vanquished by the winners, by Charles II. And Milton almost was executed for his part in the rebellion. So now, in internal exile, he writes Paradise Lost, a story about a rebellion that fails and about what happens after that failure. And he, Milton, continues fallen on evil days. The rebel government has been defeated. Though on evil days, though fallen in evil tongues, people are saying terrible things about him. In darkness, he's blind, but also in a kind of prison. And with dangers compassed round and solitude. So this is autobiographical. This is where Milton is. Yet not alone, despite all this loss, yet not alone. While thou visitst my slumbers nightly, that is when the muse comes to him every night, or when morn purples the east, still govern thou my song, Urania, and fit audience find though few. Lily. Because thou is also the way you speak to heavenly figures. That's why you say um, thou to God. So thou is, um, it's, it's one of those leapfrogging things where you say you as a sign of respect, but thou as a sign of there is nothing closer to me than God, or nothing closer to me than these spiritual figures. So it's not a disrespectful thou in any way. Um, what it is is you are omnipresent. That's why you say thou to God. Um, and if you look at German, if you look at French, you'll see that it's also um, in the singular. In German, um, it's du. Translations of the Bible refer to God as du. In French, it says tu. Um, and um, so there is a sense in which um, you is more polite than thou, but almost a capital T thou, which not quite, but almost a capital T thou, is even grander than you, but isn't for anyone on earth. Um, that would be like saying, uh, yeah, you care about me the way God does. But of course you don't. You're king. I'm nothing to you. But when you talk to God, um, you're not nothing to God. And it's not because you're on equal terms. It's because the relationship is so tremendous, whereas your relation to a king is the king is tremendous, but you're not. 
the relationship is not tremendous. And that's why you use the word you for a king. But your relation to God or to angelic spirits is tremendous in that sense. And the thou signals that. If there were another um, word as their, you know, Japanese, for example, has many, many, many more forms of, um, of politeness and of, of um, status indication than English does. Um, if English or German or French or the Romance languages had those things, there would be another one for God. Um, but in this case, it's just the tremendousness and, and the, the, the overwhelming closeness, intimacy of the relationship. Um, Martin Buber, you may know, has a book called I and Thou, um, and the, the, it's Ich und Du, that is the thou, not the you. It would be a bad translation to call it I and you, um, because the idea is that the thou is the, um, indicates that a relationship is more absolutely open than anyone you say you to. You is always formal and distant, and thou is, and that's not how you want to be talking to God. Um, so, and God also says thou to us for the same reason. So, yet not alone while thou visits my slumbers nightly or when morn purples thee, still govern thou my song, Urania, and fit audience find, though few, famous phrase that many, 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 many writers and artists have reminded themselves of afterwards, which is, I may not be popular, but I'm looking for a fit audience even if there aren't many people who see what I'm doing. So that's what Milton is saying, is it may be that most people will hate Paradise Lost, but as long as the right, intelligent, smart, deep, serious people like it, they're the audience that I'm aiming at. And then he goes on, but drive far off the barbarous dissonance of Bacchus and his revelers. The race of that wild route that tore the Thracian bard in Rhodope, where woods and rocks and ears, excuse me, where woods and rocks had ears to rapture, till the savage clamor drowned both harp and voice. So he's telling here very, very briefly the story of Orpheus, um, a story told at great length in Greek and Roman mythology, in particular in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And um, what happens is that Orpheus, the greatest of singers, is torn apart by the Bacchante. And um, even after he's torn apart, his head keeps singing for a while. That's a story that, that Ovid tells. But the story of Orpheus becomes a go-to story for poets for what happens to poets um, by what, what is done to poets by society at large. Um, that poets are gadflies in the same way that Socrates was a gadfly, and that poets are often punished or destroyed. Some of you may know that um, a Saudi writer who was supposed to have been executed had his, um, and the, there was a lot of petitioning about this, um, for blasphemy, um, for almost nothing, um, had his sentence commuted to 500 lashes over the next 10 years, 10 years of prison and 500 lashes. Um, writers are scary to tyrants, and they always have been. And um, that's one of the things that the Orpheus story starts representing.
is that Orpheus is the singer and the poet who can move everyone. Um, even rocks and trees move to come listen to Orpheus, and Orpheus gets destroyed. And um, Milton is worried the same thing will happen to him. But the part of the Orpheus story that he thinks about here is that Orpheus's mother is the muse Calliope, one of the nine muses. And Calliope, he says, couldn't save Orpheus, which is how the story goes. That Orpheus is being destroyed and his mother tried to save him, but couldn't. So nor could the muse defend her son. Calliope could not defend Orpheus, nor could the muse defend her son. So fail not thou who thee implores. Don't fail me the way Calliope failed to defend Orpheus. Why not? For thou art heavenly, she an empty dream. So here we get a distinction that he's been making from the start, which is one good thing about this epic is it's the truth, because the Bible tells us so. But there's something really astonishing about the way he puts this, which is to say not that Calliope um, failing Orpheus doesn't really matter because that's not a true story, but something much more subtle and much more moving and much more powerful and that gets us much deeper into the nature of literature, which is the reason Calliope couldn't save Orpheus. That's what the four is saying there, for thou art heavenly, unlike Calliope, who was an empty dream. The reason Calliope couldn't save Orpheus was that she was an empty dream, that she would have wanted to save Orpheus, who is no more real if you're reading Paradise Lost officially. Orpheus is no more real than Calliope. It's not that she's an empty dream, but he was real. They're both figures from mythology. They're both figures from, the metam from Ovid, from the Metamorphoses. But Calliope couldn't save Orpheus because she was an empty dream, as though the problem was not just what happens in the story, but as though the problem was for Calliope that she discovered in being unable to save Orpheus her own impotence because she was an empty dream. Lily. He is, but remember he's saying the meaning, not the name I call. The beginning of the invocation is um, you're not one of the nine muses. Um, they're all fictional. So that's why Urania, unlike Calliope, the official reading of this, um, and the official reading is maybe what Milton thought was the true reading, and in addition to that, it may be the true reading. But the official reading of this is um, there are these mythological figures, the nine muses, um, Bellerophon, Pegasus, and so on. Um, and then there are the true supernatural figures, the true spiritual figures, who are the angels and God and the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. Um, and those are the, those, they really exist, whereas the Greek mythological figures at best are fallen angels who are setting up as gods. That's what we hear in the catalog of the new names of the fallen angels of the rebel angels in book one. Hannah. I'm so confused as to what is 
So the idea, that's exactly the right question. Um, and the idea, let me just point something else out to you by way of context for this. Go to um, the end of book one. I mentioned this, but we didn't um, talk about it. In the end of book one, um, we get um, a description of the building of pandemonium. Remember, pandemonium is Milton's coinage. When you hear that something is pandemonium over here because all the flights have been canceled, people don't know it, but they're actually referring to a word that Milton coined. So pandemonium is the palace of all the demons, hence pan for all, like in pantheism, and demonium, all of the demons, is what it means. It's the palace of all the demons. And at book one, line 730, um, all the fallen angels enter into pandemonium. The hasty multitude admiring entered. And the work some praise, and some the architect. Here again, this is, you could say, a parody or a parallax or a parallel to how we respond to the world that God has created. God is the architect. Some of us praise the work, some the architect. His hand was known in heaven by many a towered structure high. So this architect had also built heaven before he fell. His hand was known in heaven by many a towered structure high, where sceptered angels held their residence, and sat as princes, whom the supreme king exalted to such power and gave to rule each in his hierarchy the orders bright. So he built a whole lot of palaces in heaven. Um, the, his name is Mulciber, so there's the Mulciber Tower. There was the Mulciber Casino. There was the Mulciber Hotel. There was um, etc. Um, nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece. So he's, he was known in ancient Greece. And in Ausonian land, Ausonian land is Italy. Um, that's what Virgil calls it. And in Ausonian land, men called him Mulciber. So the builder of this tower in Greece um, is known as, although Milton doesn't say so, is known as Vulcan. That's the Greek name. And in Italy, Vulcan is known as Mulciber. And how he fell from heaven, they fabled. So in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they told the fable of how he fell from heaven. So, it's a, so he does fall from heaven. He's one of the rebel angels. But they tell the story, even in the Iliad, how he fell from heaven. And here now, Milton literally but beautifully translates four lines from the Iliad. At the end of book one of the Iliad, um, Vulcan, Hera says to Vulcan, um, can you um, intervene with Zeus because I really, really, really want the Greeks to win? And Vulcan says, no, I did this before. He's also Hephaestus. Is, I'm sorry, Hephaestus is a Greek name. Vulcan is another Roman name. I did this before, and here's what happened to me. I was thrown by Zeus from the battlements of heaven. So thrown by angry Jove, sheer or the crystal battlements. From morn to noon he fell. From noon to dewy eve, a summer's day. And with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle, thus they relate. 
So that is, those lines are a direct translation of the Iliad, of Homer. Thus they relate, new line, erring, for he with this rebellious route fell long before. So here is an amazing story of the fall of Malsabur. And it's just beautiful. From dawn he fell, from, sorry, from morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve, a summer's day, and with the setting sun dropped from the zenith like a falling star on Lemnos, the Aegean Isle. And then Milton is saying that's not a true story. It's a beautiful, wonderful story, but it's not true. And what we feel at that point, what I hope you feel, I'm not using the, the royal we, I'm just suggesting we should all feel this way. What we feel at that point is that part of what happened to Hephaestus, part of what happened to Mulciber, is that he was thrown out of Greek mythology into the Christian story of the fallen angels. That is, here is this beautiful thing, but it's only a dream. So to get back to um, Calliope, what you're getting here is, could be summarized in the words, human life, fallen life, is a dream. That is, there, the distinction between what happens in heaven to the immortals and what happens to us mortals is that we too are dream figures. We think we're real, but we will disappear as our lives will disappear like a dream. And that is not a way of saying, and this is, I think, what's crucial here, is that Milton is saying, don't think that something's being a dream means that it has no reality, that it doesn't exist. Understand that what it means for something to be a dream is that it will disappear as though it didn't exist. That being a dream is a way of describing not non-existence, which is the official meaning here, not non-existence, but absolute radical helplessness. That, be, that she tries to save him, but she fades out because she's a dream. It's not that, oh, there's a dream that someone tried to save him, but they didn't. His death matters. That's what's, it, this is hard in the sense that it's deep. He is saying the death of Orpheus was a terrible thing. What he's not saying is the death of Orpheus was also just a dream, so it doesn't matter. He's saying the death of Orpheus was a terrible thing. And he means it, that it was a terrible thing. He doesn't want the same thing to happen to him. If it was a terrible thing, then that means that it was a real experience that he had. Calliope is as real and as unreal as Orpheus. There's no difference in their ontology. There's no difference in the level of their reality. Calliope and Orpheus are equally real or equally unreal. So if the death of Orpheus is terrible, and if Calliope can't save Orpheus, then Calliope is having the experience of a mother unable to save her son from destruction. And that's awful. And she can't save her son from destruction because she herself 
has been rendered powerless or is powerless because she has no more reality than we do. Yeah. Yeah. That he can't save himself, and they're like, oh my God, can do it because he's heavenly? Yes, exactly. So that he, Milton, belongs to the native element of Earth, the place of mortality, the place where we all disappear, as Calliope and Orpheus also disappear. So he's giving a description. I think he's doing something really powerful here, and it's hard to describe it right because he's putting poetry above, let's say, theology. But what he's saying here is that if you were to choose, as he is choosing, whether to live in heaven or whether to live in a poem, he's choosing to live in a poem. Now, that, doesn't seem, that seems like a weird opposition. Heaven versus a poem? What does that mean? How do you live in a poem? How is living in a poem something that, in some sense, is the balance to living in heaven? But what it means to live in a poem, he's saying, is to have human experience. That is to have the experience that mortals have, which is to be in a world of language and of communication and um, communion with others through language, but a world that, like everything in language, is unreal. So it's a choice between the real and the unreal, you could say, is the choice between heaven, which is reality itself, and poetry, which is unreality itself. Hell and Paradise Lost is real. Earth, not so much. Earth is temporary. Earth is temporary the way poems are. Earth is temporary the way human minds are. Earth is temporary the way human minds, mortal minds, that can read and write poems are. The thing about poetry, and this is what Milton is thinking and saying, the thing about poetry is that poetry isn't and can't be a representation of the immortal because poetry is always about its own fragility and its own disappearance. So that Orpheus as poet for Milton is the figure, is a figure of mortality, the poet who is mortal. There are no immortal poets for Milton. That's obviously literally speaking not true, but almost true. There are no immortal poets for Milton. To be a poet is to recognize your own mortality. So if you prefer immortality, then what that means is you're turning away from poetry. Immortality, the, the, this is going to be important when we get to Wordsworth, so it's one reason I'm stressing it. Immortality is turning away from poetry. Turning towards poetry is turning towards mortality. If you remember what we said about inspiration, that inspiration isn't what produces the work. But the work is the attempt to return to the moment of its inspiration. Then the work itself is something that, if it succeeds, will disappear. Maybe through poetry you'll get to heaven. But when you get to heaven, you won't need poetry anymore. 
And the flip side of that is, if you need poetry, then you won't want heaven. The choice is a choice, and Milton feels it, between poetry and heaven. A way to put this again is to say, if you don't feel sympathy for Calliope, nor could the muse defend her son. Because she's an empty dream, so it doesn't matter. You know, here is... A very sad face. But it's just chalk on a blackboard, so who cares? We can laugh at it. Ha, 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 you don't exist. That would be one attitude Milton might take towards Calliope. You don't exist. But the other attitude, and I think this is the attitude he does take towards her, is it's awful that you don't exist. Not because you yourself are so desperate to exist, but don't. Because if you were so desperate to exist, you would choose heaven. No, what's terrible about the fact that you don't exist is you can't save your son. And whether you exist or not, you really, really, really want to save your son. And so Calliope, the tragedy of Calliope, trumps the fact that she doesn't exist or Mulciber's the fact that she doesn't exist. See the joke there? Trump, Mulciber, okay. <laughs> Trump's the fact that she doesn't exist because she sees in her non-existence that she can't save her son. The story of Orpheus, the central story of Orpheus is the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. And the story of Orpheus and Eurydice is one that Milton returned to again and again I've quoted it for you before, but I will again. Orpheus and Eurydice get married, but on her wedding day, Eurydice goes to hell. She's killed. She dies. Um, she steps on a snake. She dies. And Orpheus can't stand it. And he goes to try to rescue her from hell and sings to Pluto, to Hades, and sings so sweetly that Hades agrees to let her return to Earth. That's the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Milton tells the story many times in his poetry. In L'Allegro and Il Penseroso, which I mentioned before, in L'Allegro he describes how um, if only Orpheus could sing with yet more gaiety, he could have sung in such a way as he might quite set free his half-regained Eurydice. In Il Penseroso, the pensive person, Il Penseroso thinks about how Orpheus sang a song which drew an iron tear down Pluto's cheek and made hell grant what love did seek. So that's amazing. Hell granted what love did seek. But then in the story, as they are leaving hell, the one thing Orpheus is told is don't look back to make sure she's following you. But he can't be sure, so he does look back. And as soon as he looks back, she's drawn back into hell. Now, what does that story mean? I think what it means for Milton, I think what it means, is that when he looks back, he sees she's not following. Not 
oh, you turned into a pillar of salt because you insisted on looking at the destruction of Sodom like the wife of Lot, but don't look back because what you will see is that she's dead. Not looking back kills her. No, looking back is seeing what in the song he hoped would not be true, seeing that she is dead and not alive. So she can only exist in his fictional belief that she's following him. But in reality, she isn't. And when he looks back, he looks away from fiction to reality and discovers that what he loves is a dream and that he himself is a dream. And I think that's what Milton is recapitulating here. The reason this matters is that what happens now to get to the major point, since we have a minute, right, is that when Eve eats the apple, we do, we have a minute, so three. When Eve eats the apple, she eats the apple. We get it from Eve's point of view. Adam then comes, and there's an amazing line. It's not quite accurate, um, but Milton, I think, thought it was accurate. This is in book nine. Um, Adam, book nine, line um, 895. Adam sees Eve, realizes that she's eaten the apple. He has um, wreathed a garland of roses for her while they were apart, which he now drops. No one in the universe sees him drop it. He forgets about it. She doesn't know about it. Um, no one in the universe sees him drop it except for Milton, except for the narrator. So from his slack hand at 892, the garland wreathed for Eve down dropped, and all the faded roses shed. Speechless, he stood and pale till thus at length, so again, unable to speak for a while, like Satan. We've seen Satan this way twice. Now Adam is this way. Till thus at length, first to himself, he inward silence broke. What Milton is doing, someone asked me um, outside of class, to what extent is Paradise Lost telling origin stories, like how the leopard got its spots, and so on. Here's an origin story. How did thought become silent? This is the first time Milton is saying that someone spoke to himself and not aloud. The first time someone had a silent thought, soliloquized in their own mind. And in the soliloquy, he addresses Eve, but he's not addressing her. She can't hear him. He's not speaking it. He's speaking to the Eve of his mind. O fairest of creation, last and best of all God's works, he says, how art thou lost? How on a sudden lost, defaced, deflowered, and now to death devote? And then a little bit later, 906, some enemy hath beguiled thee, yet unknown, and me with thee hath ruined. So as soon as she was beguiled, Adam was ruined also. He could have stayed in paradise. That's what God says. You didn't have to eat the apple. But Adam says, no, as soon as you ate it, I was lost as well. It was one event, not two. I was lost because another Eve that God might create out of some second rib wouldn't be you. The person who matters to me is not the immortal Eve that I could have, but the mortal person who will die 
and who I will join in unreality, in death rather than in reality. Last point to make here is that God says to the, rebel, to the um, loyal angels, who's willing to die for a sinful human person? Answer in heaven, the Son of God. What's the answer on earth? Who's willing to die for a sinful and fallen human being? Adam. Adam here is doing the same thing that the Son of God does in heaven. And they both get punished for it. The Son gets crucified. Adam gets kicked with Eve out of the Garden of Eden. But think of Adam as, be, as being like Calliope. He can't defend Eve, but he can join her in unreality, in the dream of life that is our life as mortals. Okay, have a good break. Finish it over break. Um, one more day on Paradise Lost, and I will send you paper topics later today.